Amen. Good morning, New Life Midtown, 11 a.m. service. Awesome. Man, it's good to be in the house together with you today. Thank you for coming to the house of the Lord. How many guys are expecting something from God today? Anybody? I think Lauren does such a good job generating genuine excitement and anticipation for the God of the universe and the God of the ages who is here before us, who is present to us. I'm telling you, if we cannot get excited about that fact, I I think there needs to be a little bit of an adjustment in our heart and our mindset because the God who created everything is here in this place today. So I I have a word that I'm carrying and I'm, I'm carrying it a little bit differently, I feel, in the second service than I was in the first. So Jesse came up. It's really cute. He was like, hey, he said, man, first service was amazing. He says, just do that. Just do that and don't change the thing. The problem is, is I feel like I'm supposed to just deliver this in a different way. It's going to be the same meat and the same content of the spirit of this word, but I feel like I'm carrying it differently in the second service. And I can't even explain that. I just know that I'm speaking to somebody today. And there's somebody in the room that this word is for, or maybe online, maybe here today joining us online. God, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about that with modern technology, that when we come into this place, prayed up, ready, with our worship, with our response and our exuberance and our faith, I want you to think about this, wrap this around your mind. With the prayers that we pray and the decrees that we make and the messages and the invitation of the table and the beauty of what's happening in that sacramental moment, I want you to think about this, that somebody could actually dial into our service that's archived years from now. I want you to catch this, that what you do when you show up to this space matters beyond this moment. That because of modern technology, what is being captured in the spirit of this moment in this room by these people, those that have been called to gather together in this space with faith and expectation, this is why it matters how you show up. Because I'm here to tell you that when we're capturing this live, by the way, when you're sitting here and you're just doing this right here, the, the, the camera's catching it. I'm just saying, I'm just saying it. I'm just saying, okay, there, there is a video chronological archive of you not engaging with God. So you do what you take that and you do that. You, people are like, that's why I sit way in the back, Pastor. That's why I sit in the back row so the camera don't see me. No, we're going to get one of those like omnidirectional cameras. We're going to catch all of y'all. But, but this, um, again, the spirit of this is somebody could tune in and they could click on YouTube and they could scroll down and four or five or eight or 10 years from now and they could catch what God is doing in this moment right here. Are you, are you, are you feeling that? Are you seeing the weight of that? That's powerful. Okay, so for those of you who are joining us today for the first time, Welcome. Thanks for joining our 11 o'clock service. I'm Jay Duncan. My wife and I, Christy, have been here in the city 18 years this August. We love being a part of the New Life family. We're one of eight New Life congregations that are spread all throughout the city, and we all have a singular purpose, 
and that's to make disciples, followers, wholehearted, loving followers of Jesus in this entire region. And I would even add to that, to the nations beyond, that God has called us to reach regions and nations beyond even this city. And we get to be a part of that assignment in this hour of history, and what an incredible assignment it is. We have been five, six weeks now in a series on Who is God the Father? And today I'm going to continue that installment. I think we only have about two more after today before we transition into talking about who Jesus is as son. So I'm going to be covering a lot of territory and I'm going to be fast forwarding through a lot of the background of things. And I encourage you, if there's anything this morning that is piquing your curiosity, if there's anything where you're going, man, I want to hear a little bit more about this Exodus 34 story or some of the, the details or the background, I encourage you to go check out some of the other messages that we've had because I think they've been pretty phenomenal. At least Jonathan's has, right? They've been amazing. So if you do have a Bible, turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. If you don't, no worries, it's going to be on the screen. And I'm going to do what I didn't do in first service, and I'm going to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit in this message. All right? So sorry, first service. <laughs> ah, Holy Spirit of the living God, we know that you're here. We know that you're moving, that you're moving among the waters of our hearts and our minds, that you're moving among the waters of our hopes and our dreams, that you're moving among the waters of our hurts, of the chaos in our lives, of the rejection, of the fear that we're carrying into this space. And in the same way, Holy Spirit of God, that you were moving on the waters of the earth before it came into being. You're moving on us today. You're hovering over us. And so I pray that the Spirit of God who is present right now, that you would minister to our hearts and our lives, that you would make sense of these words, that you would cause illumination and revelation to spring off the pages of Scripture. God, that you would, you would warm the affections of our hearts. You would melt down the barriers of the coldness and the callousness of our hearts. And God, today I pray that we would encounter the living God afresh and anew. Whether today's the first day we've ever stepped in a church or whether we've been in church for decades, I pray today, meet with us again. Oh, living God, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the book of Exodus chapter 34, we pick up the story where a man by the name of Moses, a man who God literally saved from the time he was born and pulled him aside for a very, very special, unique, I would say a divine purpose. God called this young man and he used or worked with Moses to accomplish something miraculous. And that was to bring deliverance to a nation of people that had been living under oppression and bondage and slavery for years the Bible tells us that they had been living as slaves for 430 years. And God raised up this man, Moses. He endowed him with power. There were miracles and supernatural activity that was taking place. And Moses, with the help of God, delivers the children of Israel out from underneath the slavery of Egypt. And through a series of events, now we come to Exodus chapter 34, where Moses has asked God, I want to know who you are. I want to know who you are, not just the display of power, but I want to know your heart. I want to know what you're about. I want to know what I can trust about you. I want to know what I can go to the bank on. 
I want to know that when I make mistakes, I want to know who you're going to be in those moments when I mess up. And so God agrees to reveal to Moses who he is. And I think that there are some people that are here today, maybe you've never consciously said that, but there is a hunger and there is an ache inside of you. I want to know who this God is. I want to know who the God of these songs that we sing is. I want to know who the God of the pages of this book is. I I, I want to know the real God. And I want to know you in a way that is not just facts and figures and data and science and stories and dogma and doctrine. I, I want to know you like I know my own breath or my own heartbeat or I know the closest friend in my life. Because that's how Moses knew God. The, the Bible tells us that he knew him like a friend. And so God calls Moses up to the top of this mountain and they have this beautiful interchange where God says, this is who I am. We're gonna pick the story up in verse six. And God passed in front of Moses and he proclaimed, Moses, I am the Lord. I'm Yahweh. I am the God who is, who has always been. I am the eternal God, the ancient of days. I am the God who knows no beginning and I will never know no end. I'm eternal. I'm without limitation. That's who I am, Moses. I am the Lord, the Lord. And then God self-describes. He reveals who he is to Moses with these five characteristics. And mind you, these are the words that God has chosen. You ever been in a group of people or you've had an icebreaker or you get into a new group and you have to do all these like get to know you games or conversation starters and you're trying to reveal aspects of who you are. Tell me your story. What's your favorite so-and-so? Or if, what's your spirit animal? If you were to identify as such, I mean, like, whatever it is. Like, there's all these kind of conversation starters, right? We all, we all do them when we're mixing it up. What, what do I share? You know, Christy and I were taking these personality tests, and there's so many of them. It's ridiculous. You have the Enneagram. You got the Myers-Briggs. You got, but there are all of these things that are designed to help us put language to understanding who we are so that we can self-reveal, so that we can invite people into knowing who we are so that we can be known and so that we can know one another on a deeper level. How many of you guys are connecting with what I'm saying right now? Of all the things that God could say, You could say, I'm holy, Moses, I'm powerful, I'm omnipotent, I know everything in the world. God chose five things, five words or compound words to reveal who he is. I put a lot of stock in that. I'm like, God could have said anything. And there are a lot of characteristics and attributes and names that are in the scriptures and throughout theology proper that reveal who God is. And God chose five. Here they are. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Number one, I am compassionate. Moses, I feel deeply. I'm not an aloof, distant God. I am a God who burns deep inside of my being with emotion. And it's emotions of affection. It's emotions of longing. I care deeply about the state and the welfare of your life. I care about the choices you make towards yourself, towards me, and towards others. Secondly, he says, I'm gracious. And Pastor Jonathan did a marvelous job unveiling to us deeper levels of that word grace. Last week, we talked about the fact that God is slow to anger, which means more than he's just patient. It means that he cares so deeply about the things that affects our lives. Listen, I I think we want God to get angry about the things that happen in our lives. 
If we're doing something that is hurting us or hurting somebody else or hurting one of his other kids, God's going to respond in kind. It's not a vindictive or judgmental anger. It's not an anger that's designed to be punitive. He's not trying to punish us. It's an anger that says, I have your best interest in mind, and I'm passionately involved in your well-being, right? He's passionate. He's passionate for your life. Today, we're going to talk about the fourth characteristic that God uses to self-describe, and it's an interesting word in the Hebrew language. In fact, there are many language scholars that say there is no other word, listen, in any other language that does what this word does in the Hebrew language. And the word is hesed, H-E-S-E-D, H-E-S-E-D, hesed. It's this powerful word that, it's powerful because God uses it to describe himself. And it's also powerful because he chooses to use it twice. Doesn't use any of the other words twice. So look, I'm the Lord, the Lord. I'm compassionate, I'm gracious, I'm slow to anger, I'm abounding in, if you're writing in your Bible or if you're taking notes, that word right there that says love in the NIV, that's our word today, hesed. I'm abounding in love, which means that my hesed towards you, it's overflowing. I have so much of it, I'm so full of this divine love, this loving kindness, this generosity, this endless patience, this miracle love. I'm so full of it that it just overflows. It's overflowing. I cannot help but to be unfailing in my love towards you because I'm the God who's overflowing and abounding in hesed. But then he goes on. He says, I'm abounding in love and faithfulness. Watch this next verse. And he says, also, I'm now maintaining hesed to thousands. So it's a powerful word. And of all the characteristics that are found in these two verses, God chooses to use this word twice. I'm overflowing in it, but I'm also guarding it. I'm maintaining it. I am fighting for hesed in your life for all generations. One Bible encyclopedia says that it is one of the most important theological words in the entire Old Testament. I'm going to nerd out for a little bit today. I'm taking an entirely different approach on all of our messages. You guys should be excited about that. I'm very strategic about this. We're going to get really nerdy here on like on a word. Another lexicon says that it's the most, listen to this, the most sacramental word in the entire Bible. And that's because its range is so broad and it's so deep and it's so multifaceted. It's used about 250 times in the Old Testament. And of those 250 times, 75% of those 250 times are used to describe God's hesed towards us. Now, how many of you are in this room and you're NIV users? Let me see my NIV peeps in the house. All right. How about New American Standard, ESV, New King James? Okay. What you're going to find, particularly when it comes to this verse and this word, is a lot of times it's translated a lot of different ways. When the first Bible translators, Tyndale and then Wycliffe, before we got to our King James Bible, they used the word mercy. For whatever the word mercy meant to them, they felt like mercy was one of the best singular English words that we could use to describe the word hesed. But when you look at 
continuing progressive modern translations, you'll find that there's these two unique distinctives or these nuances. You'll find that mercy then finds its home in the idea of patience and kindness, like this overflowing, extravagant generosity. This loving kindness is the word that the King James and similar translations nestle themselves into. That whenever you find the word hesed, they like, they like using the word loving kindness. And when loving kindness is used, it's used to, to demonstrate to us that God's love is not an obligatory love. It's not just a, a contractual love. It's not a sterile love. It's not a stoic love. It's a love that is motivated by tenderness and kindness. Kindness. God is kind towards us. I'll never forget when I was a kid, one of my favorite preachers that was in the city that I was in preached this message. And at the end of his message, he just began singing this song. It was kind of an old little chorus Thy loving kindness is better than life. Thy loving kindness is better than life. You guys heard that song? Thy loving kindness is better than life. And then he just said, it just marked me as a high school kid. I was like, wow. And then moments of my life when I felt like I was far from the goodness or the kindness of God, I would hear Bishop Holcomb's voice. My lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee. I will lift up my hands unto your name. Yes, your loving kindness is better than the very breath that I breathe. That's our word hesed. I didn't know it then. God is kind towards you and he's gentle and he's patient and he's tender towards you. But then on the other side of modern translation, we find the word steadfast. If you're in the ESV or in the NRSV, you'll find steadfast or enduring love. The hesed of God is enduring. But then when we take these two concepts and we put them together, here's a definition we come up with. Hesed is a loyal posture. It's a loyal posture. So let's start with that. Let's start with the fact that if you and I do not have a loyal posture towards the people that are in our lives, spouses, children, roommates, friends, best friends, if we, if we don't have a posture that's loyal, that relationship is not going to stand. If you kind of have a, like a prenuptial posture, do you know what I mean by that? If you have a posture where you're like, hey, I'm going to hold most of my good stuff back for me. I'm not going to divulge. I'm not going to share. I'm not going to be vulnerable. I'm not going to give my best because I know that at some point you're probably going to mess me up. And when you do, I'm going to catch you or I'm waiting for you to reject me. Do you know what that is? That's not a loyal posture. And when we carry this suspicious like holding the best of ourselves back or expecting the worst of others. When we hold that posture, what we're doing is we're setting up our relationships to fail. And either they'll fail officially and formally, or they'll fail in producing the good flourishing life that they were designed to produce. They, they won't fulfill their maximum potential in the relationship, right? So Hesed is a loyal posture. It's a posture that says, I am with you and I'm for you and the, the, the trajectory of my heart is for this. But it's also a posture that is accompanied by generously kind 
actions. And I love that those two words are together. It's my working definition. Generously, like generous is not enough because you can be generous but not be kind. But kind is not enough because you can be kind but stingy. So the posture of our heart is I'm with you and I'm for you and my heart is committed to you towards the end. But the entire tenor and tone of my relationship towards you is going to be full of generosity and full of kindness because these are the things that cause a relationship to flourish, right? This is the range here of the word. Some of the nuances, it's kindness, which motivated by love, but it's also love that stays in the yoke of faithfulness and commitment over the long haul. It's the kind of love, I think, that when we stand across from that person that we make vows with, It's this is what we have in mind. When we say, I vow, I promise to you that no matter what happens in the course of our lives, that I promise to love you by my actions and by my sacrifice. I promise that my posture to you is going to be loyal and faithful. I'm not going to cheat. I promise that I'm going to be generous and kind to you. And I promise I'll do whatever it takes to cause our relationship to flourish until it ends, right? Till death do us part, whether in sickness or in health, whether we like strike the lottery or whether we lose it all. I'm for you and I'm with you and I'm never leaving you. And the tone of my life for you is always going to be extravagantly generous. That's hesed. It's It's a word that... It doesn't just describe a feeling. It's a word that when I've looked at multiple now verses of where hesed has been used throughout the scripture, it's characterized by action. Let me me explain it like this. It's like an old man who's been married to his wife now 40 or 50 years, and his wife is now losing function. And the husband quits his job and says, I'm... I'm not going to just sit on the couch and tell you, honey, I love you, but let's pay for someone to take care of you. Hesed is, honey, I love you, and I'm going to do whatever I can within my power and my ability and my faculty to to care for you and to take care of you. You know, being a pastor now for 21 years, I've had the incredible, humbling, sobering privilege to be a part of some of these moments. Earlier in our years of youth ministry, we had a family in our church, the Hamiltons, And Rosalind Hamilton develops a neurological condition. Nobody, for years, the doctors couldn't figure out what it was. Was it Parkinson's? Like, we just didn't know. But but progressively, she began losing function of her body. They had five children. And I sat back and I watched as Daryl Hamilton became the caregiver and the caretaker to the degree that he could before they eventually had to end up putting her in a place. And then he visited with his children very often but he had to help her with every physical bodily function. He had to feed her. He had to pick her frail body up from her wheelchair and lay it in her bed. When she needed to wake up and use the restroom in the middle of the night, he had to wake up and pick up her frail body and take her. Friends, that's hesed. It's not just, hey, I love you. It's not romantic feelings and inclinations, right? It's not being swept up. It's not goosebumps. It's, I am willing to be inconvenienced out of my loyal love and out of my generous 
kindness towards you. That's hesed. Look at some of these words. Denise has been so kind to enter these words for us to take a look at. These are some of the, I know you can't probably read these. We got, we got a lot on here. But if you can see some of these, I want to I highlight some of these. L- listen to these words. Love, loving kindness, merciful love, loyal love, sure love, relentless love, enduring love, steady love, dependable, extravagant, affectionate love, miracle love. That one hit me. Miracle love. Like I think when I tell that story, and I could tell the story about John Collicott and his wife, Lisa. I could tell the story about kids who made ridiculous sacrifices to care for their parents. I could tell the story about parents who were loving for special needs children. You know what that is to me? I think that's miracle love. I think that's love beyond the constraints and the limitations of human ability. I think we tap into a part of the love of God that is so beyond us when we begin to touch hesed and we receive it and we express it one towards another. You've been in those places before. I, some of you guys have. I can see it in your eyes where you're thinking back, you're recounting right now some of the hardship of your own lives and of your own relationship with people. And you're like, I don't even know how I made it through that. I don't know how we made it through twins or two sets of twins or six children or waking up in the middle of the night or sickness or running back and forth to the hospital or uh, sticking together with my spouse when they violated our our fidelity and our covenant. That's hesed. I can feel that emanating off of some of your beings, even this moment. You're looking at this list, covenantal faithfulness, covenant friendship, forgiving someone who's betrayed you, who's walked out on you, gracious covenant, covenant loyalty, unswerving loyalty. Here's a couple of my favorites here. Extravagant generosity, persistent faithfulness, and endlessly patient. As if patient wasn't enough. That we've got to throw in there, endlessly patient. Denise, thank you so much for putting those words in there. That's incredible. Let me take you to a couple of familiar scriptures and show you where we see this word hesed. And then I'm going to do something that's a little uncharacteristic because typically in our messages, we've been talking a lot about how these characteristics are displayed in stories from God to humanity. But I'm going to flip the script a little bit today, and we're going to talk about how Hesed is expressed and lived out from human to human. I think it's really powerful. Psalm 36, verse 5, very well-known passage, thanks to third day. It says, your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, and your justice is like the great deep. Now I want you to think about this. Look right here. Your love, O Lord, that word love, that's our word, it's hesed. Your love is, it's higher than the heavens. It reaches to the depths of the, where do the heavens begin? Where do I, like, is there, is there, is there a demarcation line that once you like orbit beyond the galaxy or the universe, like this is where the heavens begin? I don't know. But what I do know is that the scripture says that your love reaches wherever the heavens begin, your love reaches there. But then notice from beyond there, it goes down. And these are all like subcategories or they're offshoots. They're they're branches of the Hesed of God. Then it says that your faithfulness, which Jonathan's going to preach on next week. Listen, 
faith, the faith, the covenant faithfulness of God is a branch of the hesed of God. There would be no faithfulness if there were no hesed, right? So his love reaches to the heavens, but his faithfulness reaches to the skies or the clouds, wherever that is, wherever we demarcate that. But then it says that your, your righteousness is like the highest of the mountains. Now we're touching land. But then it says your justice goes to the very bottom of the ocean floor. And what we find out is that throughout this poetic parallelism, we find that the entire cosmos is upheld by the character and the nature of God. That he holds it together by his unchanging, enduring, everlasting love. It's all held together. This entire planet and beyond from the bottom of the ocean floor to the top of the highest heavens, God's love is there, right? Psalm 118 verse one starts off and it says, it says, give thanks to the Lord for he's good. Listen, if there's ever a moment in your life where you're tempted to be a little victimized or you're tempted to throw a little pity party or to complain or whine, like just camp out Psalm 118 and Psalms that are similar to this. Because thanksgiving breaks the power of victimization off of your life. It breaks the power of whining and complaining. It breaks, it breaks that nasty attitude. Give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because he's good. This, this was our cornerstone message. He's good. We look for the goodness of God. But the goodness of God is propped up by this, his enduring hesed. And here's what I love about this. It tells me that throughout all of eternity, before you were ever born, you know what was there? His hesed was there. You were born into his love. You were born out of love. His love was before you. You were born into it, out of, enduring love. And when your time on this earth is over, you're gonna enter into a new creation that is filled with hesed. It is filled with the enduring love of God. And here's what I love about this too. It means that his love's not moody or temperamental. It means that like, like on this day, maybe he's going he's to be happy. He's whistling today, so today he's full of hesed, but tomorrow we're not sure the room, you know, the, the dishes are dirty, so maybe today he's not going to be full of hesed. Nope. It means that no matter what is going on and no matter what you and I have done, none of us can violate the enduring, unchanging hesed of God towards us. Isn't that amazing? All right, here's another one. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Christy came home the other day and she said, babe, I think this is the verse I want to tattoo on my body. She said, I think this, this is the verse. This is my life's verse. This is the verse I want everyone to, when they think about me, I want them. She's like, that was privileged information, pal. It's a joke. But see, if you don't remember anything in this message, you're going to remember that moment. You remember that story. Just waking people up today. Micah chapter six, verse eight. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. So you want to live the good life? Who wants to live the good life in here? I want to live the good life as God defines the good life. And what is the good life as God defines it? Very simple. It is, what does the Lord require of you? It is to act justly and to love, here's our word, to love hesed. To love extravagant, generous kindness that endures in a covenantal relationship. To love mercy to love his loving kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Like the direction and the trajectory, 
the posture, the attitude of our hearts is, God, I want to be a man, I want to be a woman who loves the loving kindness of God towards people. So let's take a a look at a couple of stories here. We're going to begin in Genesis chapter 47. Genesis 47 is this brilliant story of Jacob, who's one of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and one of his sons ends up in a land that's not his own. He's actually violated by his brothers. He's left for dead, and he's picked up by a band of travelers. his, His very own brothers sell him to be slaves by this band of travelers, and they take him to a faraway land. And Joseph ends up in Egypt. And at the end of Jacob's life, through a series of events, Jacob and all of his brothers end up in Egypt with Joseph, and they're reunited. And we find here, this is so beautiful, because what you're going to find when you go back and you look at the story is, Joseph, by the time he was probably 17, has been separated from his father and his brothers. And he's gone through horrific, horrific life events. And he's thrown in prison and then he's let out of prison by the grace and the favor of God. It's, it's incredible. And through, through this famine and Joseph's wisdom in this famine, Jacob and all of his other sons end up in Joseph and they're reunited. And Joseph has spent the majority of his life not knowing whether or not his own dad was alive. And Jacob, since the time Joseph was about 17, was told, your brother has been ripped apart by lions. So Jacob has grieved the death of his son. Can you imagine that moment? Like if, if you could magic treehouse your way back to a moment in time and sit there and watch Jacob and Joseph be reunited. Wow, I'm not crying, you're crying, right? So then they get these beautiful 17 years which is amazing because that's how old Joseph was when he left the house. And I literally, literally just saw that right now. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years. See, he's so blown away. He's got to go compose himself right now. And the years of his life were 147. Now, here's where the story gets good. Jacob's about to die. Next verse. And it says, when the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son, Joseph, and he said to him, if I have found favor in your eyes, if I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh, which is a physical expression of a promise. It's like a pinky promise with a lot more weight. (laughs) Put your hand under my thigh and make this promise to me, Joseph, watch, that you will show me hesed. Son, show me hesed. Show me covenant loyalty and love that is expressed through extreme generosity. Because here's the thing, you guys. When you hear that, you're going, that's not a big deal. Dad, sure, I'll bury you. I'll bury you with your fathers. This is what he says is, son, don't bury me in Egypt. Look at the next verse, verse 30. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say. Now, the next verse, we don't have to go there. But Jacob says, promise me. Promise me. Like he reiterates this. Here's what we don't know. That the cave that Abraham had bought 
where he's buried and Sarah's buried and Isaac's buried and Rebecca's buried and Leah's buried, this cave is about 250 miles away from Egypt. Okay, pre-Tesla, pre-bullet trains, right? This is gonna be a long trip. And what we'll find out is if you read the rest of the story in Genesis chapter 50, is that Joseph takes a massive entourage. He takes all of Jacob's family. He takes all of the brothers. He takes all of the elders of Egypt. And he takes all of the servants of Egypt. And they set out on this massive trek to go bury one man. To which I think, Joseph's not, J- Jacob's not really going to know if I don't fulfill this promise. Ha, ha, ha. Are you guys getting this? Like, I mean, if I'm Joseph, I'm thinking, yeah, dad, I promise. Wink, wink. That's a huge undertaking. It it brings us into the level of inconvenience. You seeing this now? Hesed is, I am willing to be inconvenienced. This is why we use the word extravagant, guys. Because this is a massive undertaking to travel 250 miles by foot and by chariots with a massive group of people to bury one man just because he wants to be buried with mom and dad. Give me a break. Do you realize how much you're inconveniencing me? You ever, you ever been called upon maybe on a weekend, like a holiday weekend? You're like, you're looking forward to sleeping in. And then you get that phone call and you're like, hey, bro, man, I'm moving this weekend. Can you, can you like help me out? And you're like, seriously, seriously the one week, the one day I get to sleep in, right? Or you get that call and you're like, bro, can you take me to Denver? I got a, I got a 7 a.m. flight. Okay, why don't you just spend the night up in Denver, man, right? This is Hesed. This is Hesed. This is extravagant love that is demonstrated out of a spirit of loving kindness set within the context of a covenant relationship with another person. We see this again in the book of Ruth. For those of you guys who remember our Ruth series, you'll remember that there was a gal by the name of Naomi. In the beginning of Ruth, her and her husband, they travel out of Bethlehem and they go to Moab, which they're not allowed to go to. But out of desperation and famine, they end up leaving Bethlehem and they travel about 50 miles. Moab's about 50 miles. It's a seven to 10 day journey. And they're there for 10 years. They have two sons, and Naomi's two sons end up marrying two girls from Moab. Now, in the course of these 10 years, here's what happens. Naomi's husband dies, and her two sons both die. This is a tragic story. It's tragic. And I think Naomi is going, where is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I'm going to go back home. There's nothing left for me here. And everywhere I look, all I see are the fingerprints of grief from the loss of my husband and my two sons. And so her two daughters-in-law now accompany her, and she's about to leave town, and they're walking with her. And then she stops them in Ruth chapter 1, verse 8, and she says this. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back. Listen, there's no, there's, you don't want to be with me. Just let me grieve and let me be sorrowful and you've done a great job. You've been great daughters. You've loved my sons well. I release you. I release you. No hard feelings. In fact, you would probably be a better help if you went back with your own moms. Go back to your families. 
They need you there. Naomi said, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you hesed. May the Lord show you extravagant generosity that flows out of covenantal loving kindness. May the Lord show you that. Why? Because you have showed that to my sons, and you've showed that to me. And this has been beautiful, but now I, I release you. Well, many of us know this story. One of the daughters takes her up on that offer. Orpah says, you got it, Mom, and she heads back home. But then another girl by the name of Ruth looks Naomi into her eyes, and this is what she says in verse 16. Now, we don't see the word hesed explicitly used, but if this isn't hesed, friends, I don't know what it is. Because Ruth replies and says, Mom, don't urge me to leave you. Like, you're breaking my heart. Like, I know that you think this is what's best, and I know that you're trying to give me every out possible, but I'm here to tell you right now, please stop. Don't urge me. Don't ask me one more time to leave you or to go back. And then she says this. She begins making promises. Very similar to spousal covenantal vows. Listen to this. Where you go, I'm going to go. And I don't care if it's Bethlehem or I don't care if it's on the backside of the moon. I don't care how far we have to walk or what I have to carry for you. Mom, if you're there, I'm going with you. Where you go, I will go. And where you choose to set up shop and put down your tent pegs and call that home, I'm going to be right there. And I'm going to go out there and I'm going to chop wood. I'm going to bring it in. I'm going to start fires and I'm going to cook meals and I'm going to help you make that place a home. And we're going to see the redemptive beauty of God in the latter days of our lives. So where you go, I'm going to go. And where you stay, that's where I'm going to stay. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to have wanderlust. I'm not going to look around for better ideas or better opportunities. Mom, I'm with you. And then it goes on and she says, your people will be my people. I know I'm from Moab. I know I'm a Moabites, but for all intents and purposes, you can call me an Israelite from now on because your people are gonna be my, I'm gonna fight their battles. I'm gonna learn their language. I'm gonna learn their customs. I'm gonna learn their stories. And, and from here on out, I'm gonna pour into my children that they are the children of Abraham. I, guys, this is powerful. You are the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm gonna be grafted in and I'm gonna adopt an entire new way of life. Your people are going to be my people, and I'm going to know who Yahweh is because your God's going to be my God. And I'm going to throw away all the idols of my fathers, and I'm going to learn the stories, and I'm going to worship the God of Yahweh. And then she says, this is so powerful. And mom, where you die, I'm going to be the last face that you see. And when you take your dying breath, you're going to look up, and you're going to see, you're going to see Ruth. And you're going to hear my sweet voice blessing you. And you're going to feel the fingers running, my fingers running through your hair. And you're going to know that you were loved until the very last moment of your life. You know what this is, friends? This is Hesed. This is Hesed. You know what, Ruth? Ruth, Ruth was beautiful. She was industrious. She was faithful. She was still of marrying age. And she was willing to cash all that in. I think, in the, I think in Ruth's deepest conscience, I think Ruth did not expect to marry again, right? And, and with her, she was fine with that because my home's with Naomi. I'm not looking to get married. I'm looking to take care of Naomi. Why? Because she was my husband's mom. That's Hesed. Let me, just, let me just summarize this next story because we're running out of time, but I didn't get it to the first service and I, I wanna share the story. It's in 2 Samuel chapter nine. 2 Samuel chapter nine, we find the story of a guy by the name of Mephibosheth. Everybody say that with me, Mephibosheth. 
And friends, there is so much beautiful context in the story. I'm, I'm literally going to race by this. But I, I, I regretted not sharing this in the first story, especially when we got to the table. So let me, let me blaze through this. There's a young boy by the name of David. He's chosen by God. He's out in the shepherds. You may know him as David, David and Goliath, right? That's the David. And David is selected to be the next king. Now, the current king is a guy by the name of Saul, who's a madman. He was selected to be Israel's first king. He started off well, but over the course of time, he started making decision after decision that pulled his heart away from God. And at the end of his days, he made some really, really bad choices. Saul actually became so jealous of David that he tried to kill him numerous times. Saul's son was a boy by the name of Jonathan, and Jonathan and David became best friends. And in the course of their friendship, Jonathan said to David, listen, I know that it's customary within kind of royal tradition for me to be the next king, but I can see the hand of God all over you. And it's driving my dad crazy. But David, I want you to know as your best friend that when that day comes, that even though I'm the prince, that I'm gonna humbly defer and I'm gonna allow you to be the next king because I love you and I see the hand of God on your life. Now, over the course of time, and, and Jonathan actually says to David, he says, I want you to promise me. I want you to, no, no matter how crazy my dad gets, David, I want you to promise me that you'll always show me and my family and, and my children and my children's children, promise to show them hesed. Show my children loving kindness, no matter what my dad does. And David says, Jonathan, I will do it. Saul dies and Jonathan dies with him on, on the battlefield. David becomes king, just like it was promised. And in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we find this story. Let's read it together. David is looking around. I mean, like everything is established now. And he's going, I made a promise to my best friend. And I want to know, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show chesed to for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's house. Remember, Saul is the crazy king that tried to murder David. You got you to remember that. You got to feel the weight of that. So there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, and they summoned Ziba to appear in the royal court before David, and the king says, are you Ziba? At your service, your, your highness, your, your, your majesty. <laughs> the king asks, is there no one that is still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's hesed? And Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, He's lame in both feet. When you go back and you read the story, you'll find that Jonathan's son, out of fear of kind of running for their lives, when he was a little baby, he got dropped. And when he got dropped, he became crippled. This is Jonathan's son, David's best friend, the king's grandson. Now, if you've watched any of those like English movies, like what do you want to do with someone who belongs to the king's line, if you're the king and you don't belong to the king's line, you want to get rid of them because they're a threat because they have royal blood living in them, right? This is not David's posture. So he says, where is he? And Ziba answered, he's at the house of Makir, son of Emiel and Lodabar. There's a lot in that right there. So he's living in the slums. So King David had him brought from Lodabar and the house of Makir, son of Amiel. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, whew, he bowed down to pay him honor. Like, I'm the, I'm the next in line. What's going on in Mephibosheth's heart? You're an imposter. My dad should have been king, which means I should be king 
lame feet or not. And what are you going to do? He's suspicious. He's afraid. He's intimidated. He's been hiding underneath the radar. And now the king is calling him in and shoot. It's all out. Like it's, it's over. Are you guys feeling that? And David said, Mephibosheth. Almost like I didn't even know that you existed. And he's like, at, at, your, at your service, at your service. Don't be afraid, David said to him, which implies he was afraid. For I will surely show you chesed. I will show you loving kindness and steadfast love for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all of the land. You're not going to live in Debar anymore. You're not going to live in that valley of tragedy and death. You're not living in the slums. I'm going to give you back all the land that you should have had as a royal grandson. Okay, this is sonship, y'all. And, and, and you will always eat at my table. I need you to feel the weight of that. I need you to feel that Mephibosheth, who's been kind of cast aside and now physically can't hold his own and is wondering and worrying whether or not the king's going to slaughter him and is now left without a grandfather and a father and has been wondering about his future, has in a moment of time, Hesed, has come to culmination and fruition and has said, you will never, ever eat another sloppy joe you're never going to eat another TV dinner. You're never going to run and, you know, you're going to look for slops. Some of you are like, I like that food. <laughs> you're, you're never going to have to worry about where your next meal is at. You're going to be overtaken with the king's best food, and you have a seat at this table. Friends, do you know what that is? That's hesed. It's loving kindness that is extravagant in its generosity, and it's covenantal in its duration. Would you stand to your feet with me this morning? Because here's, here's the sucker punch. Are you guys ready for this? That if human beings can do that to one another, how much more is the hesed of God towards you? How much more? I want to close with this verse. It's in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. And it's a prayer that Paul prays. And it's a prayer that I'm going to pray with you and I'm going to pray for you. And we pick it up right here. It's kind of in the, middle of, of, in the middle of Paul's prayer. But he says, I pray that Christ would dwell, he would live, he would find his home in your heart. And all of this happens as a result of faith. God's not going to come and impose himself on your life. He's invited in and he takes up residence in your very life by the conscious decision of faith. It's a faith act. It's a trust act. And he says, I pray that you would be rooted, that you would be deeply and firmly foundationed and established in love. Next verse, it says, and I pray that you would have power. Watch this. This is not, this is not self-help stuff, guys. This is not us willing ourselves to be better human beings. I pray that you would have a power that is beyond yourself, that comes from God himself. It is a power that is without limitation. And I pray this not just for you. I pray that I pray this for the entire church, past, present, and future across all geographical boundaries and all nations. Watch this. This is my prayer. I pray that you would have power to grasp, 
to, to wrap your head around, to try to get your arms around what? How wide and how long and how high and how deep is the hesed of God. Now, earlier we looked at this verse that says, your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, wherever that begins. And it goes all the way down. My son is like enraptured with oceanology. And I didn't know this, but there's apparently like four different layers of the ocean that go all the way down into and beyond the Marietta, Mariana, some trench down there, right? And so this is what Paul is saying. I am praying that you can wrap your little tiny minds around how high and how love. Oh yeah, and by the way, and how far the east is from the west, I am praying that you can wrap some semblance of revelation around how much God loves you. And this is what's challenging. Listen to me. This is what's challenging about this series. This is not a pragmatic series. It's not a series where you just go and you have your to-do list, you know, five steps to a better you, or I'm going to go. And this is not what this series is about. This series is about you hearing good news about the indescribable, inexpressible, unimaginable depths of who this limitless God of love is. And that you hear it and you read it and you think about it and you write about it and you listen to it and you sing songs about it to where it gets down into the table, the water table, the the bedrock of your very being. And what it does, it begins to push out and displace insecurity and fear and rejection and that internal narrative that says you're never enough, you're never gonna be enough, you shouldn't have been born, you're a screw up, you're a failure, you're just stupid. You Like the, this message right here, I'm praying, this is what Paul is praying, that it become your reality and that anything and everything else that runs counter or opposite to that will be pushed out. Are you hearing me this morning? That's, that's the big ask today. Would you trust that there is a God of Hesed who wants to show you loving kindness, who wants to care for you in your old age, who will never leave you? Your love never fails and it never gives up and it never runs out on me. Friends, I wanna invite you to the table this morning as we break bread together and we celebrate the embodiment of God's Hesed in the life and in the death of Jesus. You can exit on the left, receive body and blood, and then we will receive together. Friends, can I ask you to pray a prayer with me? 
We're gonna pray two prayers, but this is the first. I'm gonna ask you to very simply say, Lord, help me believe like you mean it and, and help me receive your unfailing love. Now I wanna to talk to somebody specific in this room today or if you're joining us online, if you're here today and all of this sounds too good to be true or maybe it's brand new. Or maybe you heard this when you were a little kid and you've fallen so far away from God and, and today you maybe walked into these doors with your head hung down low with a little bit of shame and a little bit of fear. Friend, I'm talking to somebody today who maybe you do not know the love of God. You don't know the great lengths that God has gone to to win you back. And that story of the king showing kindness to that crippled, that crippled son of his best friend, that's our story. That in the beginning of humanity, we were crippled. We were crippled in our soul by sin. But you and I were created to, to sit at the king's table. We were created with royalty. We were made in his image. And by our own willful choices, we chose to cripple our own lives by walking away from the will and from relationship with God. But God sent his son, Jesus, his one and only son. And the scripture tells us that out of his hesed, out of his undying covenantal kindness, God sent Jesus to come after us. And that love nailed Jesus unjustly to a tree where he was executed and he was crucified in our place. And the scripture is very clear that by faith and by trust in this, not by anything that we've done and by ourselves, no merit of our own, but if we would say, God, I, I'm willing to believe that you let your son die in my place so I could be brought back into relationship with you. The scripture tells us that at that moment of belief, you are immediately and you are eternally saved. You are brought back just like Mephibosheth stood before David. From that day forward, he was welcomed to the royal table. And friends, it would be wrong for me to preach about the loving kindness of God without giving you an opportunity to respond. So I'm gonna ask that you would bow your head and close your eyes. And I'm gonna lead us all into a prayer. It's a prayer of confession. It's a prayer of repentance. But it's also a prayer of responding to saying yes to God's love and being welcomed into his family. And I'm asked that we'd all pray this, and that we pray it from the very depths of our heart. Heavenly Father, I say yes to you. And I thank you that you sent Jesus to die for me, to die in my place. And you welcome me into your family. Father, forgive me of my willful sin and welcome me by faith in Jesus into your family. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, I believe with all my heart that in those few seconds, like if you attach sincerity of your heart into that prayer, God does something inside of your life that he comes in to inhabit the home of your heart. And if that was you today, and you prayed that for the first time, or you made a kind of a renewal prayer, I'm asking that you would come up and you would see me after service. Because I wanna encourage you on how to grow as a follower of Christ, and how to get connected to his family. Now on the night that Jesus was betrayed, before he was nailed to that cross, he had a meal with his friends, and he took bread and he broke it, and he says, this is my body. 
I'm about to do this literally and figuratively. My body's about to be broken. But right now it's in the form of bread. And every time you do this, I want you to remember my body was broken for you and for your wholeness. Friends, will you take the body and break it in your hands and receive it by faith in the name of Jesus? And then just Jesus took a cup of wine. It represents his blood. It's covenant blood. And whenever God uses the word covenant, it means enduring and lasting. And it means that when he uses the word covenant, he will never go back on his promise. And this is what he says, I'm starting a new covenant. It's a new agreement. It's a new arrangement. And it's the arrangement that because of what I'm about to do on this cross, I'm going to always forgive you. I'm going to wash away your sin, your iniquity, your rebellion, your wickedness. I'm going to wash it all away. And I'm going to keep the door open and the light on for you always to come home. That's what the covenant of blood means. So let us receive today. Come on, y'all. Right? Right? Let's respond with thanksgiving and then I'll pray you out real good. Praise God to from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above His Friends, would you, would you just open up your hands? And if you're at home, you can open up your hands to receive this blessing. I pray that the God of Hesed, the God of undying, unfailing, loving kindness, extravagant in his generous love towards us, I pray that that God would be known to you, that he would reveal himself to you over and over and over again. And I pray that it would go deeper and deeper and into layer and layer of your very being. And I pray that it would transform you into a beloved son and daughter who lives with grace, who is able to walk justly and love mercy, who is able to walk humbly. I pray that it would change the way that you see God, that it would change the way you see yourself. I pray that it would change even the nature of your relation, all of your relationships, people you work with, your spouse, your children, your parents, in-laws, outlaws. God, I pray that that your love would literally transform our very being and that we'll be carriers and containers of hesed to the world. And right now I send you, church, I send you. I send you to the place that you've been called to. I send you today in the name of Jesus. In the same way that the Father sent Jesus, so now Jesus sends you to go and to be the embodiment of the Hesed of God to the world around you, that the world may see and know that this God is a good God in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Love you.